Well, this evening it's providence and power. Let's do it the other way round. Power and providence. The fact that God is all-powerful, omnipotent, is an essential aspect of our understanding of who God is. And if you look round, it's one of the generally accepted features of human ideas regarding God, regarding the divine, that God be the Almighty. And when we test that general human idea against the witness of Scripture, we find that Scripture corroborates it. Our intuitive idea of God as all-powerful, as almighty, is corroborated by the testimony of Scripture. It is a correct perception. Time and again, we have evidence of the writers of Scripture praising God as the one who is the God of power. Psalm 24, for instance, celebrates God as the King of glory and calls him the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts, or as the NIV puts it, the Lord Almighty. The idea is that he is the one who has control over the vast powers over all that exists in the universe, the Lord of hosts. The prophet Jeremiah confidently declared to God, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you. The angel Gabriel came to Mary and said to her, Nothing is impossible with God. And you remember how when Jesus was dealing with the disciples' problems over how a rich man could possibly be saved and enter the kingdom, and they were thinking this just wasn't going to be possible, he said to them, with God all things are possible. And those are just three or four of a great many passages in Scripture that present to us the unlimited nature of the power of God. Now, over the centuries, there's been a fair number of discussions about the exact nature of this divine power. Perhaps these questions were more commonly agitated in the the medieval period than any other. Uh, But uh, the basic lines of discussion have been the same in many centuries. In the medieval period, there were two groups of theologians. There were those who were known as the nominalists. They argued that God was able to do anything at all. You think of it, God can do it. They went so far as to say that God had the power to sin. God had the power to change himself into an animal. God was able to construct a square circle. You name it, he could do it. He could even have the power to make the false true. They said you can't put any, you daren't put any limit on the power that God has. He's able to do anything whatsoever. 
We mustn't set any limits to his power. It was a very useful doctrine when it came to trying to establish the truth of transubstantiation in the doctrine of the Mass. It was, uh, that was one of the, the main um, reasons for supporting it. On the other hand, there were those who were known as the realists, who taught that God can only do what he wills, and that he cannot do what he does not will. And they went on from there to argue that what God wills is the actual universe around us, and God's powers exhausted in it. They didn't say God can do anything whatsoever. That was the nominalist approach. The realist said, no, God's power is limited by his will, and it's further limited by what we see. Now, of course, the truth comes somewhere in the middle. Scripture tells us that there are things that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot be tempted with evil. He cannot deny himself. He can do whatever he pleases. But the the problem of understanding this is our problem. Because God is so immense, because God is so vast, we first of all think about God's will, and then we think about God's power, and then we've got the problem of bringing the two together in harmony. But of course, God's will never exists apart from God's power. The use of these terms comes out of our limited perception. God's so big we can't take them all in at the one time. His will and his power coexist in perfect harmony. And there is no limit to the power of what God, that God has, the power of what God can do. There is no limit apart from that which arises from his own being. And scripture shows us that we mustn't limit the power of God to what's actually occurred. His power is infinite. And all that has and will occur, even though it's a great vast number of events, is still a finite number of events. It falls far short of what God could actually do. Jesus himself showed us that. Remember how in the the garden he said to his disciples, Do you think I cannot call on my Father And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. There there was the possibility of God in his power directing 12 legions of angels uh, to, to help the Son. That is God's absolute power in respect of an action that doesn't contradict what God is in himself. But Jesus immediately limited it to what God had actually willed, what God had actually decided should be. But how then, he went on to say, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So although God has the power to do more than he actually does, there is a harmony between his power and his will. What the divine will and the divine wisdom has directed and ordered to take place. The limitless power of God 
ensures shall take place and that God's desires are not going to be frustrated. And it's because of that that we worship God. The idea of omnipotence, the idea of a being that has total power and control is intimately connected with our worship of God for it is only a being who can do all things who can be worthy of the total veneration that's required for true worship. It's only a being whose ability to act is without limit apart from his own will that is able to engender in us the trust that's of the essence of faith. And so it's no wonder that Paul in the New Testament will talk of God's incomparably great power for us who believe. It's no wonder that Paul expresses his own resounding conviction and invites us and draws us to join in that conviction that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no other power. There is no other force in the universe, search high or low, that is able to frustrate the power of God. Salvation is guaranteed by the Almighty. And because of that, we bow down and worship him. Now, one of the clearest demonstrations of God's power is what he did in creation. All things were brought into existence by him. We're not directly looking at creation this evening, but we're going to have to come back and think about certain aspects of it later on. However, it is from that initial act of divine power out with the Godhead in bringing into existence the universe, it is from that initial act that we have the basis for the theme of providence that is our focus this evening. Because in providence, we're thinking about God's subsequent involvement with what he's given existence to. To a certain extent, there is a continuity between creation and providence. Uh, Some of the um, older writers talked of providence as a continuing creation. But nowadays that's avoided because it's got very pantheistic overtones. Uh, Nowadays we would talk rather about the continuation of creation. God has brought all things into existence, but that is not the end of the story, it is the beginning. 
The term providence, it's difficult to be certain where it arose from, but I, I rather like the, uh, the view that sometimes expressed that it comes out of the, the Latin Vulgate in the translation of Abraham's reply uh, to Isaac. Remember, they, they were both uh, climbing Mount Moriah. And Isaac said to his father, here's the fire and here's the knife, but where's the, the ram for the burnt offering? And uh, Abraham replied, the Lord will see to it, the Lord will provide. The, the response that was taken up in the name uh, Jehovah Jireh. Well, the, the Latin translation is providebit, uh, the Lord will provide. And that seems to have been the origin of this idea of providence. Providence, in the first instance, means to see beforehand. To see beforehand and then to make suitable provision in respect of what is foreseen. So that when we're talking about God's providence, we're talking about his most holy, wise and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And that was, of course, an English document long before it was a Scottish one. So the the classic doctrine of divine providence looks at the way in which God interacts with the world now. Three themes can be identified. There is preservation. God keeps in existence what he has created. He maintains the properties of the entities that he has brought into existence so that we have a world that is reliable, a world that is regular, a world that is predictable, a world whose basic framework is not one that suddenly dissolves before us, leaving us, leaving us in confusion. God preserves the world he has made. There is also the idea of concurrence. God directs all that occurs. As created beings act in accordance with the divinely given powers that they have, they act as God directs. There is the reality, to take it in the, at the human level, there is the reality of the human decision, but at the same time there is the concurrence of the divine control, so that what happens is what God directs, requires. And there is thirdly this aspect of government. God's control has a purpose, has a goal. He has not merely set up the universe. He doesn't merely direct it. He directs it purposively towards the end, the target, the goal that he has in mind. 
Now, in those three things, there's quite an agenda. But we need the three aspects if we're going to avoid falling into various errors. Perhaps the most common error has been that of deism. Deism views the relationship between God and his creation along the lines of a a craftsman who has produced uh, an intricate piece of machinery that's perfectly proportioned, that works itself out, and the craftsman just goes away and leaves it to get on with its task. Deism views God as creator, will acknowledge God as creator, but has no real place for the doctrine of providence. God stands back from his creation. He may watch it from a distance, but he does not interact with it. It's like the craftsman who's put an elaborate clock on a church tower and watches it from the ground. And on the other hand, we have to avoid, particularly in these days, pantheistic thought that's come back in uh, with so much of the the Eastern thinking uh, that's become popular in recent years. Pantheism does not grant a real distinct existence to creation. It merges the divine with the world. But the doctrine of providence reflects the scripture teaching of the distinction. One might even say the gulf between God and creation. And yet at the same time, the doctrine of providence does justice to the reality of ongoing divine control. And I suppose that also rules out two of the conceptions that are fairly common in our atheistic culture. That events are random. Things happen by chance. Not at all, says scripture. Everything, right down to the smallest detail, is known, is determined by God. But it equally rules out the idea of fate, of an impersonal determinism, of some blind, cold force that is overruling and shaping the way we go. Because the doctrine of providence emphasizes that it is God the Father who is in control. It is not impersonal, but personal. It is not some blind force that has shaped the destiny of this universe. It is the Father working out what he requires, what he desires. Now again, I've presented those as points in theology. But it's of no difficulty at all when one turns to Scripture to substantiate these points of view by a vast variety of texts. It's sometimes surprising how often this is emphasized in Scripture. 
The idea of preservation. Well, you have it there in Psalm 36, verse 6. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. Perhaps better known is Acts 17.28. In him we live and move and have our being. And there is preservation. In him we live and have our being. There is also concurrence. In him we live and move. It's not just God gives life, preserves life. It is in God we move. And that is where the concurrence occurs. Our actions are also in him. The particular steps we take are determined, are predetermined by God. There there was read just now Psalm 139. All the days ordained ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And that is not a dread thought. That is not something that alienated David from God. It is not something that threw him back, but something that caused him to exclaim, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. The wonder of God's intimate and detailed knowledge. The universe, the writer to the Hebrews said, the universe is upheld by the word of Christ's power. And Paul and Colossians said of Christ in him, all things hold together. Whether we look at it in the vast cosmic dimension of the whole of existence, in him all things hold together. He upholds them. Whether we look right down at the level of the individual, we find God there also. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course, or wherever he pleases. Proverbs 21.1 Just as easily as men dig a channel to irrigate their fields, so God directs the course of the heart of the king. And so often in scripture we find historical incidents. It's not just presented at the level of a general principle. It's presented also in particular detailed narratives. Such as that at the beginning of the book of Ezra. Where the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. God turning the heart even of the great men of this earth so that they do what he wishes. Now as we think about it, we've got to be careful. We've got to be true to what scripture says. And it doesn't present God's direction in such a way as to undermine the reality of human choice. It doesn't say... You can take the doctrine of God's providence and that does away with our responsibility for the way we decide to go. 
The God who is in control sets up both the way we should go, the means we should use, the direction we should take. He causes all things to happen. But the wonder of this world that God has created is that he causes all things to happen in such a way that he also upholds our ability to make real, willing, responsible choices. Now it's very difficult to find an analogy for this process because we're dealing with something that is divine. But as you look around, you'll find that people have often used the analogy of the author of a piece of fiction or someone who's written a play and the power that they have over the characters in their play. The author creates the character. The author gives the character certain traits, certain potential, puts them in a particular situation, and then determines the plot of the story, determines the way the characters are going to go. The analogy breaks down, of course. Because what God has done goes far beyond the literary creations of a a human author. God has been able to create real people with the power of choice, set us in this world, and has done it in such a way that he still directs all things. He governs them to ensure that his purposes are carried out. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? As Nebuchadnezzar confessed. I quoted that last week as well. Paul affirms that from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, that is creation. Through him, that is his providential preservation of all that he has created. And to him, that is his government of the created realm, so that it achieves his desire, the glory of his name. From him, and through him, and to him, are all things. Nothing is left out of the scope of God's providence. But the wonder that's revealed in the word of God is that while he has done this for the glory of his name, he has been pleased to link the glory of his name with the salvation of his people. That is the way in which the divine government on earth is working itself out. That's the goal it's going towards. We live in a cosmos that God is purposefully directing towards the day that when at the name of Jesus 
Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The aim of God's providence, the aim of God's ongoing interaction with his created realm is his own glory. But he has linked to that glory the reality of a saved people. A saved people enjoying what he is giving in Jesus Christ. That is the vision of faith. That's what makes the doctrine of divine providence such a source of strength and comfort as we make our way through this world. At present, we don't see the whole picture. But we are convinced that there is a whole picture. And we are convinced that the all-powerful God is in control of that picture. And he is directing the complex within the picture for the redemption of the church of Jesus Christ. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Can I just digress slightly? I think in that there's a word of warning that we should try to avoid thinking of providence in a narrow sense. You know how it is. Sometimes we're in circumstances where we've just avoided danger or loss. And we're apt to say how providential that was. We're apt to see God's hand at work in the fact that we have escaped such and such an injury or escaped such and such a loss. And that's undoubtedly true. God's hand is at work. But we mustn't make the mistake of associating providence only with the events in this life that fall out in such a way that we can immediately see how they're for our good. It would equally be the case that it was God's providence if we suffered injury or we suffered loss. The basic doctrine is that he is in control of all things. Oh, we especially rejoice in his goodness. We're apt especially to recognize his good hand in providence when it's something that's beneficial to us. But we should also be careful that we don't limit God's providence just to some things in life and deny it in those aspects of our life that are more difficult to bear or that are harder to understand. Providence is both a descriptive word and an evaluative word. And as a descriptive word, it includes all things. When we use it as an evaluative word, we're thinking just of those that are immediately beneficial to us. And I suppose that digression brings us to the big problem. I've deliberately set out, in brief compass, the positive aspects of God's providence. But there exists a significant complex of problems 
that all involve the challenge of the existence of evil in one form or another. There's the classic statement of David Hume, Scottish philosopher. He posed regarding the existence of God and evil. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? And that is the challenge that has affected many people. Whence then is evil? We wish to confess God's power. We wish to confess God's goodness. And we look around us and we see a world where evil exists. Can I go further? Where it abounds on every side. And as we think about God's goodness and his power and the existence of evil, common sense seems to tell us that all these three things can't exist, can't coexist at the same time. Now this, of course, is a challenge for the philosophers. And they have been thinking about this before ever our Lord came to earth. The Greek philosophers were engaged in thinking about these problems. But it's not just an abstract problem. It's not just a matter of bandying words around to get definitions. It is an acute personal problem. There are those who find it a barrier in the way of believing in God. How can there be a God who lets so many innocent children suffer such an appalling death in some famine? How can there be a good God who lets so many lives be lost in the eruption of a volcano or in some disastrous earthquake? How can God be in control and yet tyrants arise on earth who oppress, who take the lives of many? And of course, it doesn't just hit us with the big questions. It hits us in our own personal lives. Well, we're not dealing with evil in general, but with the particular manifestation of it that's impacted our lives or the lives of those around us. How can God care for me? How can God be in control and say he loves me and this has still happened in my life? Now, many have wrestled with the perplexities caused by the existence of evil. Indeed, it's even got its own technical name, theodicy, the attempt to vindicate God in the face of the prevalence of evil. Now, one of the strange things is that you don't find theodicy of that sort in the Bible itself. It doesn't try uh, to explain or vindicate God in the face of evil. 
Oh, it takes up the problem, deals with it many a time. But shall we say it deals with it pastorally rather than philosophically? It deals with it so as to bring us back to the reality of who God is in himself, call upon us to trust in him rather than by God giving some explanation of what he's doing. Nevertheless, many people have tried to probe the matter a bit more closely. And one of the ways they do it is to modify one of the elements in the situation. If we perceive tension, if we perceive some level of contradiction when we assert the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the presence of evil, then there have been various systems of belief, various philosophies or religions that have tried to solve the problem, to resolve the tension by modifying one or other, if not more than one, of those three elements. Sometimes in the history of thought, it's been the concept of divine omnipotence that's been weakened. And there are those religions, they sound rather far-fetched nowadays, like Zoroastrianism and Manichaeism, that posited a dualism. Two ultimate entities in the universe. Two ultimate principles. Not just God, but God and the power of evil. And the dualistic systems view this world as the, the um, battlefield in which God is struggling to overcome this evil power. And there's no certainty as to the final outcome. It was that sort of thinking that gave a great deal of heart perplexity to Augustine, uh, the, the great Christian thinker in the early centuries. Because the problem of evil was a real one. And one way that's very attractive is to say that the evil is not from God. That's really, in effect, to say that they're God, that they're, they're, the greatness or the power of God is not as absolute as we might suppose. There are others who, who lessen the goodness of God. Uh, I don't want really to, to go into that just now. It doesn't seem terribly common at all. But they, they seem to be going back to the error of the nominalists. They, they, they tend to make God's will arbitrary, not fixed by his own character, and say God wills that evil exist, all of it, and that uh, his goodness has to be understood in those terms. We've, we've set a wrong standard. We have a wrong picture of God's goodness. And there are those who deny that evil exists. I suppose that's been most popularized in, in Christian science eh, through the thinking of Mary Eddy Baker. She argued the only real existence was that of God. Spirit and matter are re spirit is real and eternal, but matter is unreal and temporary. 
And evil in particular is associated with matter and it's not real. There isn't a problem. It's an illusion. Same was true of disease and of death. They were all illusions. No reality. People are just deceived by their senses into misunderstanding what's truly there. It doesn't work. It didn't work for Mary Eddie Baker because like the rest of us, she died. And at a philosophical level, it doesn't really work. It just changes the problem. It changes the problem from why does evil exist to why, does, why is there this widespread illusion of evil in the good world that God's created. There are various attempts being made to grapple with this problem of theodicy, of how God can be good and powerful, and yet there's evil. And as we try to gain a scriptural perspective on it, we have to admit that it can't be expressed in some simple formula. No one has yet come with a final answer. But scripture presents us with a number of considerations. Doesn't explain the existence of evil. But it goes some way towards providing us with a framework within which we can orient ourselves and not be nonplussed by the problem. And I think the first place we've got to begin is with creation and with what God was trying to do in creating human beings. It seems to me that we've really got to ask the question, was it not the case that when God decided to create human beings, a necessary consequence was the possibility of evil coming into the created realm. You see, we're created as morally responsible beings. And that logically implies that there must be free will of some sort. In creating beings, I suppose you've got to include angels as well as humans in that. Beings that have real freedom of will. You can argue that God cannot guarantee this will always exactly corresponding to God's idea of what should be done. Otherwise, you're trying to get God to do the logically impossible. And this seems to be the case no matter how we conceptualize the freedom of choice with which mankind are endowed. It seems to be inescapable that if God in creation had acted to prevent the existence of evil absolutely, then he wouldn't have been able to create humanity as we are. It looks as if it would have end, we would have ended up as androids or robots or whatever, but not human, not capable of love, 
not capable of making a willing response to God, not capable of what he's looking for from the highest beings in his creation. If he'd brought us as beings into an environment where there was no possibility of real choice, he might have avoided the existence of evil, but at the cost of not having beings that had willingly chosen to love and serve him. It's possible that that's part of the answer to the existence of evil in this world. God had a plan to make us fully human. He decided to create this sort of world because in it he could show his glory best of all. But in that, there seems to be an inevitability that the possibility of evil arises. God wanted beings who'd be in a position to choose to have fellowship with him, even in the face of great and real temptation to do otherwise. And then you can go a bit further. Creation of morally responsible beings, able to make choices, goes some way towards explaining the existence of certain features of this world that are painful, that seem to be tarnished evil. The evil of suffering is in the world as a warning and a deterrent to harmful actions. God has allowed in this, God has decreed in this world, that certain actions have painful consequences by way of deterring us from them. God has also decreed in this world that there will be disobedience for those who flout what he has directed as the right way. There are genuine consequences to our decisions. And these have come in the form of what is painful or what is sorrowful. Does evil befall a city unless the Lord has done it? The prophet Amos asked. And the evil that was in mind there was the evil of God punishing a city that had departed from him. So that at a second strand of our thinking, it's not just the fact that God created moral beings, it is the fact that God interacts with us both to deter us from certain courses of action and to punish us if we persist in those courses of action, that there are evils in this world. And another strand of thought, and uh, I'm going to have trouble tying all these strands to get one string at the end, but they're, they're all there, is we've got to be careful what we think of as constituting good and evil. 
we're very prone to determine what is good as what is pleasant to us here and now. What we endorse, what we welcome. And to say, oh, what is evil is what is unpleasant, what we recoil from. But that's not the way Paul was looking at good when he was talking in Romans 28. In all things God works for the good of those who love him. Paul wasn't thinking about short-term pleasure, immediate gain. He wasn't thinking in terms of the, the wealth and health and present happiness. He goes on in the next verse to explain what he was thinking of. And he defines it in terms of the goal of conformity to the likeness of the Son. And in that light, many things that we now perceive as evil in God's providence may eventually be reclassified as good. We're all aware of painful experiences that we would rather not have. The the, the standard example is the next visit to the dentist. But it may very well have longer-term consequences that are good. In the opposite direction, there are pleasurable experiences. One can think of sitting down to a sumptuous meal full of calories and all sorts of things that will clog the the arteries. And we might eventually have to reevaluate that superb meal Uh, in terms of how well it promotes health. Uh, And it might not be the same evaluation. We're finite. We don't know all the circumstances. We have to confess that our perception is often warped because sin still affects us. And we're time-conditioned. We have a very immediate view of what constitutes good and evil. And Paul always urges us to take a longer stance. I consider that our present sufferings, he doesn't say they don't exist. He acknowledges they exist. But he says our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And he talks of light and momentary troubles achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So there is a third strand. The idea that we better be careful just how we evaluate good and evil. And then I think we have to stand back and take in the whole biblical storyline regarding the way in which evil has become present in this world in which we live We must never lose sight of the fact that our world is not now as it originally was. Evil has entered in as the result of sin. We have all, as a a human race, departed from the innocence in which God originally created humanity. And in Genesis 3... We have the curse pronounced on the created realm because of the entry of sin. Can I, can I quote uh, a, pas- a passage from uh, Donald Mackay, who used to be a professor in these areas over in Lancaster, I think it was. 
In discussion of the Genesis creation narrative, he wrote, it is often insufficiently realized that the last creative act is recorded not in chapters 1 and 2, but in chapter 3. God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In short, we are told that the created order as we know it now is a revised version. Some changes may for all we know have been slight, but in one far-reaching respect, our natural order is radically different. For ours is a creation under a curse, groaning in travail. Not just its human history, but the very principles of natural law reflected in the growth of weeds, the toils of life, and the inevitability of decay and death are different from what they might have been but for the fall. He's emphasizing in a way that isn't often done how far-reaching that the effects of the fall are. We recognize the toilsomeness and weariness of work. We recognize that to dust you must return. But he's tying it in with Paul's picture in Romans 8 of this creation subject to frustration, this creation groaning or right up till now. The diseases that exist and the disasters that occur are presented as a physical reflection of the curse that has arisen because of mankind's spiritual choice to take the path of rebellion against God. Over against all dualistic systems, evil is not equally ultimate with God. God is there, he alone is eternal. But this world of ours bears a divinely impressed stamp. A stamp that has been placed on it because of our sin. Because of our rebellion. And that has changed, for the moment, the parameters of God's creation. But it's not just natural evil that occurs in our world. The fall means that there is human moral depravity as well. We often perhaps tend to think of that in individualistic terms, and that's true. But how much structural sin there is in this world? How much exploitation because of the way society as a whole operates. It's just as real as natural evil. Indeed, in many cases, it interacts with natural evil. We think of famines and earthquakes and all sorts of natural evils in the world. But many of these are intensified by human sin. The famines that exist coexist with vast stores of food in other parts of the world. The consequences of the earthquakes are often magnified by substandard uh, building standards, 
by people who have been motivated more perhaps by profit than for safety. Indeed, why are people living in areas where there is a a vast and well-known earthquake risk? There is something there about the perversity of human nature. I'm not saying we can explain away natural evil. I am saying that the impact of it is often intensified by the distortion that moral evil, man's deliberate decisions, bring into the structure of this world. But God is still working, even through the sinful decisions of man. You know the story of Joseph. I'm sure you know how Joseph summed up his experience. His brothers had sold him as a slave into Egypt. And yet he could say, God sent me before you to preserve life. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. Even though men are acting motivated by their rebellion against God, the wrath of man praises him because God is also active, ruling and overruling those human choices in such a way that they work out his purpose, not ours. But you say, I'm sure some of you would, if I give you the chance, You've slipped past the problem. It's all very well to analyze what's going on in this world in terms of the fall and in terms of human sin and God's judgment and human sin. That hasn't explained where evil came from because it didn't originate with Adam, nor for that matter with Eve. There was another power. There was the temptation in the garden. What caused man to sin in the first place? Was there at that point some lapse, some momentary lapse in divine attention, whereby God's providential rule was ineffective? Genesis 3 clearly shows that the stimulus to sin comes from out with mankind. And that seems to push the problem back a stage. The angels are created. If this is Satan who is presented under the guise of a serpent, how did he come to sin? And scripture's silent. And I think we really have to question whether we should expect an explanation of the existence of evil. Because at its root, evil, sin, is irrational. Whether you look at it in terms of man's decision to sin or the angelic decision to sin, it's irrational, it's without explanation. The Apostle John says, sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. It doesn't correspond to anything of which an explanation can be given because you can't explain the irrational. 
God didn't create sin. He provided the necessary options for freedom in his responsible beings, man and angels. Options that could result in sin. But it was man that sinned and before that the fallen angels, not God. We're not to think of sin as some germ, some virus, some initial blot in the creation waiting to infect created beings. It arose when situations and possibilities, innocent in themselves, were perverted, were twisted to other ends. One of the Old Testament words for sin is a twisting. It is taking what is inherently innocent, what is inherently good and positive, and irrationally, inexplicably, turning it away. But there is one final strand I would bring to your attention. It is the ultimate dimension in the scriptural presentation of the problem of evil. At one level, it is the fact that evil does not just affect us, it affects God. We're told that God was grieved by the sinfulness of mankind. Genesis 6 and 6. There's certainly anthropomorphism in that expression. We're using words to try to tease out what it meant. But there is the element of pain. Sin is hurtful to God. We see it in the New Testament. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. The believer's rebellion is something that is hurtful to the Holy Spirit. God has not created this universe without the possibility of his also being affected by what goes on. And supremely in the Christian's wrestling with the problem of evil is the fact of the incarnation. The triune God knew what the second person of the Trinity would come to this earth to endure so that this world, this universe, which he created with this awesome possibility, might be redeemed. He knew what was going to be involved in negating the impact of evil in this world, what was involved in overcoming the effects of sin the specifically Christian dimension to wrestling with the existence of evil is the fact that God came and dwelt among us and entered into this world of sin. He came, God the Son, to become the victim himself of evil so that there might be victory over evil. In Jesus Christ, both the temporal and the eternal dimensions of evil and suffering are conquered. Physical death epitomizes temporal evil and suffering. The tyranny of sin 
epitomizes its eternal and moral aspects. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ reigns victorious over both through his work of redemption. Through his substitutionary death and his resurrection, he has overcome the twin evils of sin and of death. His redemptive work inaugurates the first fruits of the age to come. So that even in the midst of the present groanings and travail of this universe, where sin is rampant, there is engendered the hope of complete redemption to come and the restoration of all things. The apocatastasis. It is not just the case that God is going to leave things in this form. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And things will be restored back to where they were. Yes, and more than so. We look around the world at evil and suffering. And scripture shows us God not explaining where evil came from. But listening to us. And counselling us how to go on. Remember how in Psalm 73, Psalmist was perplexed at the prosperity of the wicked. In fact, his viewpoint, perhaps he went too far. He thought they had no problems at all. He looked at them and they they seemed to live lives that, that, that nothing went wrong in. And he says, when I tried to understand all that, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. It's as we come round to that perspective that we begin to get the framework in which we can grapple with this problem. We see evil and it is unnatural. It is an intrusion into God's good universe. We see evil and we show sympathy. For the afflicted and the oppressed. And it's to go more than that. It's to work itself out in concrete and effective help. The gospel requires action. Not passivity or simply sympathy in the face of suffering. The parable of the the good Samaritan. It's not just enough to say how sorry I am that you're down there. It requires us also to take action even now. To alleviate that suffering caused by evil. Because we are showing forth that we are in the image of the one who has ultimately relieved that burden. I've read somewhere, and with this thought I am concluding. Nervous chairman, get the signs. Um, I've read somewhere that the reform, some of the reformers distinguished between security and certainty as regards this life. We want certainty. We look for a guarantee. And God hasn't given that to us. As we live in the providen- in, under his providential control in this world, we've no guarantees of immunity from the groanings of creation. We've no guarantees that we're not going to suffer. Indeed, it might almost be said it's the other way around. But we do have security because we have the promises of God. And the promises of God point us forward with a hope that we'll not be ashamed 
with a hope that will not be disappointed. If we try to grapple with God's providence, especially with the problem of evil in it as it is now, and we do so just in terms of what we can now perceive and appreciate, oh, we may get the answers of the philosophers of this age, but we don't get a specifically Christian answer. What we have to recognize is God's involvement in, God's victory in the Son over the problem of evil, and the reality that we have to focus on is the fact that now we are awaiting the ultimate revelation of what has been achieved in Jesus Christ. We talk of Christ the Redeemer. We often focus on the cross. Yes, that's a good place to look. But Christ's work of redemption will not be complete until he has brought all his own into the new Jerusalem. There is a sense in which that is the way in which we must understand the difficulties on the path, the problems that perplex. He is guiding. He is in control. And it's a control and a guidance that is towards that final destiny that he has bought with his blood for his people. In that we have security that all who are his will be with him and no power, no force can snatch them from his hand. I know that you didn't come uh, to receive um, some of these ghastly courses that I've had to attend but never go again where there's an input of five minutes from the speaker and then 95 minutes of sharing. (laughs) This is the time when you're given an opportunity to ask any questions you might want or illumination or comment and I I think that uh, Mike Johnson has very keen to open the batting. Um, if we can depart from, from God's purposes uh, and sort of twist options here on earth, God has made us in that way, uh, what will prevent us departing in heaven? That's a very good question. <laughs> And I'm told that when somebody says it's a very good question, it means I haven't got an answer to it. No, let's think about the angels. Sorry? Angels. It perhaps is helpful because there are fallen and unfallen angels. It would seem that originally all the angelic beings had the power to choose how they were going to live. And when they they faced up to a choice, God then confirmed in their holy standing those who did not defect. So at that level, it would seem from the teaching of Scripture, and you've got to make a lot of allowances uh, because it's not as, there's not many passages deal with it, that the unfallen angels are preserved perfect in holiness. The time for their decision is past And God, rejoicing in the decision they've made, 
has confirmed them <coughs> indefectible. In the same way it would seem that if Adam in the garden had not fallen, uh, again, one is reading behind the contours of Scripture, but this is the traditional doctrine of the covenant of works. Scripture focuses on what did happen, which is the downside, but by implication there was the upside that if Adam had undergone successfully a probationary period in which there was always this choice before him to obey or not to obey, God would then have moved him on by way of reward into a period, an unending period of indefectibility. It would therefore appear that when we think of the saints in glory, we are thinking of them so totally conformed to the image of the Son and so upheld by the Holy Spirit that there is no longer any residual rebellion within and they are indefectible in holiness. I suppose we ought to rephrase all that saying we. Um, But it seems a long way off just now. Uh, It's a process. Now, you're going to... the, the, The nub of your question is, does that mean then that in some way, in glory, we are less than human? If the whole point of our current humanness is this ability to choose... If we are then made perfect in holiness, um, I think it would be, the way my thinking goes is that it is a matter of being so totally indwelt by the Holy Spirit that our choices are like those of our Lord himself. Now there is the ultimate standard of humanity a humanity with reality of choice, otherwise there would not have been reality of temptation, but still a reality that never swerved in its allegiance. So, I suppose my answer is that in glory, the saints are conformed to the likeness of the Son, and that is not less, but more than what we are now. And do we allow the director of the Christians to ask questions at all? He's got his hand up. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the promise is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Will we more secure in heaven than we are now, or will we just as secure now as we will be in heaven? I normally exegete scripture rather than top leading. <laughs> I was going to say the only thing that one should safely sing is scripture. However. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so could you repeat the, 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 the thought again, please? More happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. More happy but not more secure. And your question was? Top lady is talking of uh, the fact that in heaven we'll be more happy, but we won't be more secure there than we are now. 
Well, I think that that is fair because the security that we have is based on the completed work of Christ and that is over and done with once and for all. But there are... Into the theological toolkit, bring out specimen. There is objective and subjective security. Objective security, the basis on which our security rests, is the same now as it shall be then, Christ's work. But subjective security is our perception of it. And that's really assurance of faith. And we all know that that varies. It is possible now in this world to be as sure now as we shall be hereafter. But that is not the level of spirituality with which most of us live. So subject, objectively the security is the same, but subjectively, uh, here and now, uh, we often have our doubts. We feel the reality of evil. We feel the reality of weakness within to such a pressing extent that uh, we don't feel as secure as we ought to feel. You happy with that? Right. Any other questions? Some people have hurt my gaze. Yes. You mentioned uh, quite substantially the question of God controlling. Would you say what you said tonight at the gates of Auschwitz? The men in the trenches of 1418, the last war. Would you say that, what you've said tonight, after the millions that have died in Rwanda and what has happened in Bosnia and Kosovo? You see, I, I find difficulty here. You, you quoted Cyrus as being used by God, but after he killed and maimed, God knows how many people. Um, you see, you also mentioned later on about it will all be revealed of what things should be. My immediate response is, why in heaven's name wait so long? Why wasn't this revelation made before the 20th century or before Christians started killing Christians because they are Christians? You know, this is a perplexity that I have got. I quite agree. We have very great problems. And scripture intensifies them. Because if you think of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king, the Babylon, who wrought such havoc in God's people, I mean, that's the Old Testament equivalent of Auschwitz. Uh, God called him my servant. Scripture, sorry? A bit late after the damage has been done. Before it was done. Predicted it was going to happen. If God control is not very efficient over it, this is what bothers me. I think what we've got to ask, and I've got no clear answer, we've got to ask where does this fit in with God's purposes? Now, I, I don't want to be misunderstood in this, but I'm, I'm happier talking about the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, we see the Old Testament equivalent of Hitler in Nebuchadnezzar coming as God's punishment in history for his disobedient people. Now, 
there were in when Nebuchadnezzar's armies besieged Jerusalem, there was slaughter. There was slaughter of young, innocent babies as much as of um, older people who were reached the ages of maturity. Uh, I'm not saying I can totally understand it, but I find there a scriptural example which seems to me to shed light on what has happened to the Jews, not only in the concentration camps, but in a lot of things that have happened. They are the people of privilege who are living in rebellion against Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that lightly, and I'm not trying to get some simple answer. But if I try to grapple with the history of the Jews since our Lord was on earth, I can only explain it in terms of their continued and persistent rejection of the Lord himself. That's what happened in AD 70. We've got scriptural warrant for saying that's what happened in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem at another time of terrific bloodshed, of horrendous um, famine in the besieged city. Uh, if Christ had come to this country now, we'd do the same thing. I mean, I'm sorry, but your answer is devoid of compassion. We'd, we'd act the same way. You can't blame them entirely upon the Jews. I'm not trying to, and I, I appreciate that my answer is falling short because... I am trying to grapple with something that hasn't been clearly revealed. But you say it's lacking in compassion. The people, both in our country and amongst the Jews, have had the fullest expression of God's love presented to them in the gospel, and they have turned their backs on it. Uh, We are... We are living in a rebellious country and I am sometimes very fearful for what is awaiting this nation because we too have enjoyed tremendous privileges that we have just turned our backs on. Now, one can dictate. One of the remarkable features of God's prophet... Oh no, this is next week. I was wondering where the thought came from. Uh, One of the remarkable features is his forbearance, is his patience, his long-suffering. And one doesn't wish to make light of it, but where we would, as a sort of, in human terms of human judgment, we would see the offence and that would be it. God doesn't work that way. Very rarely does he work that way. He pleads, he leaves time, Judgment is a strange work, but it comes. Now, I, I'm, I am perfectly prepared to admit, more than that, that there are perplexities in the way in which God is working. But, on the basis of Scripture, we must affirm that he is in control, even of the most horrific aspects of human evil and he will show in his time uh, not perhaps all that's behind them but how through them he has been working
Yes, standing before the gas chambers. It calls for a great faith.